welcome to church, Luke 18, as we are nearing the end of our long journey through the Gospel of Luke, Luke 18 today, and uh, so, and also I hope you had a great uh, July 4th as we all celebrate. It's always such a great reminder of our independence, right, that we can come in here this morning and worship freely, that we can, you know, build our lives and build businesses and different things in freedom, and so grateful for that. Also, it's also, you know, a really great reminder that England don't want none, you know, uh, that's always a good thing to remember. Uh, okay, so what we're going to see in the story today, Jesus' parable, so it's a story that he makes up, right, that, and tells to teach us something. It's the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, okay? And, you know, by now, there's not a lot of Pharisee fans in the room. Like, by 2023, we've all realized who the Pharisees kind of were and, you know, that they were not, you know, that they treated people badly. They were haughty, as it were, okay? I know that we're not haughty, but haughty, you know that word, Okay. Uh, that, you know, whenever we hear the word Pharisee now, we think, immediately we think religious hypocrite. But in first century Judea, that was not the case, okay? These guys, they were seen as the ideal, that this is the kind of person that God really wants me to be. They were highly respected, and so, again, so, and, but then tax collectors were not. I've talked about it over and over throughout the series, as we've seen a lot of tax collectors and Jesus talk about tax collectors. And I know that if you ever miss a sermon, you go back and you listen, so thank you for that. So I won't explain it again, Okay. But they were hated, and kind of rightly so. They oppressed people. They stole from people. And so uh, the Pharisees greatly cared about religious matters. They really did. But their fundamental assumptions about God stood opposed to the grace of God as personified in Christ. Cole, can you tell me that football? So, every, oh, you see him with a that's a pretty tight spiral. Okay, pretty good job, Cole. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, hand in the back. Good job, Cole. So, uh, I, I met and heard Dabo Sweeney speak one time, uh, you know, the Clemson head coach, one of my favorite coaches, great, you know, uh, just hilarious, awesome guy, great leader. And so, he said that every year when his incoming freshmen come in, they have a team meeting, and every year with the freshmen, he'll hold up a football, and he'll say, who is the strongest man in here? And of course, they go nuts. All the guys think that they're the strongest in the room. It's me, it's me, it's me. And they finally, from within themselves, the freshman pick, normally a linebacker or a lineman, he comes to the front and Dabo says, okay, stand on this football. Anybody want to try? It doesn't go well. They can't ever do it. They'll try several times and this elite athlete falls and it doesn't work very well. And he'll go, okay, now uh, who thinks they can bounce on it? Who thinks they're the best athlete in here? And every year, okay, a wide receiver or a cornerback is selected from within the freshman, and he'll come up, again, elite athlete, five-star every, almost every time, and he'll try and balance on the football, and it never, it never happens, right? And Dabo will hold up the ball and go, football is a great sport, but it's a terrible foundation, okay? And what we're going to see in the religious Pharisees today, hands team, what we're going to see is doing good things is good, but it's a terrible foundation, Religious activity is good, but it's not something you can base your identity on. So Dabo will hold up the football and he'll say, football's great, but if you base your happiness and your identity on it, it's not going to go very well for you. So the same thing for religious activity. It's good, but if you base your justification on it, that's not going to go well for you. Look in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Jesus also told this story, this parable to some, so this is the audience, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and these men treated others with contempt. Jesus said, two men, they went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, kind of prayed loudly just like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. 
extortioners. God, they're unjust. They're adulterers. And even God, thank you, I'm not like this old tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Verse 9 says that the religious people he's speaking to trusted in themselves, and this is what religion does, right? Religion teaches us to trust. Religion teaches you to trust in yourself. Jesus then invites us into his way and to trust him. It's a totally different way to look at your life. These religious people were convinced that they were righteous while they treated other people with contempt. I don't know about you, but it's been my experience that pride and being mean go together. No? Okay. Just, okay. So their religious activity hid the fact that they didn't know God. It, it almost seemed like they did because they were doing all this religious activity, but it hid that very real fact. And again, I've noticed that people who think they're righteous often aren't. <laughs> it's the people that think they're the best and the most righteous often are the least of which. So, here, so in this parable, Jesus is getting to this kind of implicit question. Who is really righteous in God's sight? Who's really a part of God's kingdom? The assumption that most religious people have, and that's kind of religious across the board, not just Christian religious, but the assumption that most religious people have today is that on some level, God's approval for them is based on what they're doing, you know, how they're performing, their personal obedience, doing good deeds. And this is why religious people are often so proud and judgmental, because that's the outflow of that. If, okay, I'm good enough to know God, so I'm the man. I'm crushing it. So that that just produces pride and judgmentalism naturally. David Brooks of the New York Times, uh, he writes that we've experienced an even broader cultural shift, even from just religious people, okay? He says that the entire culture has gone from a culture that encouraged people to think humbly about themselves, and now we've gone to a culture that's encouraged people to see themselves as the center of the universe. We see that all around. Self has been placed on the throne of our hearts where only God belongs. Religious people do this and secular people do this. Both systems of belief do that. In modern times, values are are determined by ideas like I need to feel good about myself. I owe this to myself. We hear that. Self has become the ultimate source of truth and values. But God's way of giving significance to ourselves is totally different than the world's way, okay? Only when we see God for who he truly is can we see ourselves for who we truly are. The religious man in Jesus' story was all twisted up. Remember the football? He has his foundation totally off. Everything is pointing to him. Everything was about him. But meaning and purpose, you know, in your life can only be found when your life is theocentric instead of egocentric. Meaning your life, your meaning, your purpose can only be found when your life is centered on God and not centered on you. Uh, You cannot make yourself right with God. And that's good news. You can't. I don't have it in me. We were born with a sin nature, and we need God's mercy. Dr. Luke, uh, here in chapter 9, and he's kind of done this a lot throughout, you know, telling us what Jesus said all throughout his gospel. He explains that the Lord is telling this parable to people who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. So that's his audience here. Okay, the, And, you know, the issue of religious people thinking that they're better than everybody else is not unique to first century Jews. Okay? Um, the people in Jesus' audience were 
confident in their own righteousness. It's a pretty striking phrase. The foundation of their self-confidence was themselves, which is the common characteristic, again, of all other religions and the systems of self-esteem. That's the common characteristic. Trying to save yourself by being confident in your own works uh, is a spiritual prison. The end result is what Bertrand uh, Russell himself, you know, secular philosopher and mathematician, he said, it's the firm foundation of unshakable despair. Okay, Uh, both secularism and trying to religiously earn your way to God are the firm foundation of unshakable despair. We see it all around us. So for first century Jews, their confidence extended to their relationship with God, but their confidence did not come from their relationship with God. And that's such a subtle difference, and I think that we're susceptible to it in this room today. Such confidence is a dangerous delusion. You know, it overlooks the basic fact of human nature. I am a rotten sinner. You're a rotten sinner. Welcome to church. You're a rotten sinner, okay? Religion nor good works can remove our guilt before God, okay? The Pharisees' need, it was deeper than tithing more. So what he was talking about, he goes, I tithe of everything I make. What they were asked to do was tithe on their income. But like if his mom gave him 100 bucks for Christmas, he tithed on that. He tithed on everything above and beyond what the law even required, but what he needed. So, you know, tithing more didn't solve his heart problem. The heart, the issue is at the heart level. Look at verse 10 again. Again, two guys, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Again, Pharisees were widely respected, okay? They mostly memorized the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. They memorized that. They lived righteously. They thought they were doing the right thing. And again, everybody thought they were morally right. And then tax collectors were despised. They deserved it. They oppressed their own people, okay? So Jesus is set up here. It's sort of like if I were to go, okay, uh, the head of the Italian mob and a nun walk into the YMCA. Okay, so none of us go, oh, the nun's about to get it, right? None of us think, okay, she's going to be, but here in this story, so as soon as Jesus goes, okay, so a tax collector and a Pharisee walk into a bar. Everybody goes, oh, man, this Pharisee, he's going to come out smelling like roses. This tax collector, he's about to get it. Y'all come here, this is going to be good, okay? You know, the audience would never have imagined that the tax collector is going to be the one leaving this scenario made right with God. And it's interesting that the Pharisee compares himself with kind of bad people, right? He compares himself to extortioners. He doesn't go, God, I'm like Abraham or, or, or Isaac, or I'm like, you know, I'm like David, right? He compares himself to robbers and adulterers. And that's kind of the point. Like we all stack up well against somebody, Right? Like the guy who robs a bank and goes to prison, the guy in the cell next to him killed 15 people, and the guy that robbed the bank's like, I'm not that bad, you know? I'm kind of... And then the guy who killed 15 people reads about Adolf Hitler, and he's like, really? I mean, what I did, it could have been worse, right? So we all stack up well against somebody, and notice the Pharisee is not praying, God, I could have been like the guys I came up with, but you saved me, you put me out the gutter, and God, you saved me when I needed, no, Okay. He's praying, whew, I'm killing it, God. Do you see me? Hey, everybody else, do y'all hear me? I'm killing the game, okay? Look at verse 11 too. In the Greek, it says, the, so in the, in the original language, the phrasing is actually standing, he prayed to himself. So the language points to him standing somewhere very public and praying it loudly enough to where everybody in the temple heard him. Okay, you ever been like somewhere and you hear somebody tell one person something, but they're telling the whole room? They're saying it loudly enough so that everybody knows they just got a promotion and everybody knows. Or like when Ron Burgundy sees Veronica Vaughn coming and he's like, 1,001, 1,002. And she goes, Ron, what do you need? And he goes, I don't know if you heard me, but I just did over 1,000. 
So that's this guy's prayer. That's what he's doing. He wants everybody to know he's killing it. He's standing where he could be seen praying, which was a common hobby of the Pharisees. Now, it says he's praying, but he's not really talking to God. He's talking to himself. He's talking to other people. He's trying to be justified. That's the punchline of Jesus' last phrase there. What the man is trying to accomplish is justification to be made right before God, but he's not accomplishing it. My granddad used to say to be justified is it's just as if I'd never sinned. Now God drops the gavel and I'm declared innocent, not just innocent for my past, but innocent for my future. It's done. His blood covers me and it's just as if I'd never sinned or God drops the gavel and I'm declared innocent. So that's what he's trying to accomplish because he, he senses the, sick, the, 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 the symptoms of his sickness, right? But he addresses the problem in the wrong way. He's trying to address his sin by going to the temple and giving some money and doing some religious activity, but that's never going to work. Same for us. Coming to church, that's good, okay? That's a good thing. Okay, the, the filter just kicked down. Praise God, okay. It's better than bottle of mimosas at a brunch, is what I was going to say, and that's fine. Okay, this is better than some things that you could be doing, right? Uh, giving some money to the YMCA or to the church, that's a good thing, right? But it's not going to accomplish justification. Your religious activity can't make you right before God. You need God. I need God. I need God's forgiveness because I am a sinner, okay? When you exalt yourself spiritually— when it becomes about your money and your accomplishments and you're this and you're that, you've created this mountain of which now you're on the summit, but that's as good as it's ever going to get right here and now. But, with G- but Jesus wants us to realize that we're never going to climb the mountain without him. A pastor that I love and respect, David Platt, one time he found himself in another country speaking with an imam and a rabbi. Okay, so a pastor and a mom and a rabbi were speaking, okay? And as they're talking about kind of religion and different things, I think it was the imam that said, you know, we're all climbing the same mountain and, I, you know, you're going up that side, I'm going up this side, but we're going to all arrive at the top of the mountain and know God together. And Platt said, what if I told you that God sent his son down the mountain? That, we, that God knew that we would never do enough and be strong enough to reach the summit, so he sent his son down the mountain to forgive us and carry us to be with him. That's what God's offering you today. He's offering you forgiveness based on his performance, not based on your performance. You know, the Pharisee missed that, obviously. For the Pharisee, style was more important than substance. Uh, appearance was more important than reality. And boy, would, they, would the Pharisees have loved Instagram. You know, every morning posting a picture of himself, you know, like doing his quiet time, posting a picture of the big meal. And, you know, he goes, I'm so hungry because I hadn't eaten in 24 hours you know, hashtag pray, you know, it's like the praying emoji, the whole thing. He would have loved that. They would have loved that. But and notice the Pharisee did not pray for forgiveness. That was not an accident. It's like he, he didn't like mean to pray for forgiveness and forgot. He didn't think he needed it. I'm crushing it. I don't need God to forgive me because I'm doing all the right things. He was working hard. He not only kept the law, but he did more than the law, than the law required. His attitude is very, very clear. I have made myself right before God. He's not on his knees praying. He's standing tall proud of himself. He's really impressed, not with almighty God, but with almighty me. He's fooled himself into thinking that he can be enough. Again, he's going way past what the law asked him to do. Leviticus suggests that he would fast once a year, and he's doing it twice a week. He's like, I'm crushing it. Look at me. Now, there's no indication that the Pharisee was lying. There's no indication that Jesus is like, he's saying he fasted twice a week, but he really didn't know. There's every indication that he was doing all of these things, but the Pharisee had an inflated sense of self and a deflated sense of God. He really 
thought a lot of himself, as we're preached today, and as religion might teach us to do, and a deflated sense of God. But what he needs to do is humble himself before Almighty God, Savior God, like the tax collector does. So his prayer lacked praise and confession and petition because what would I petition God for? I'm self-sufficient. What would I praise God for? I'm doing this, right? And it's very telling in my own life when I catch myself not praying in the morning and throughout the day who I'm trusting for goodness that day and who I'm trusting for provision that day. Look again at verse 13. But the tax collector, he stood far off, just him and God, he couldn't even, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. This man's prayer for mercy is not on the basis of his own goodness. His prayer is based on God's commitment to be merciful to sinners. Um, you know, beating his breast, so kind of beating his chest like that is an ancient way of showing deep sorrow, deep remorse. It's, you know, it's like if, if your spouse died, you would beat your chest like this, and it's a sign of remorse. And so he's not just kind of shrugging a prayer to God like, hey, sorry about all that and stuff. He's like, oh, I see it. I see what my sin has done to people. I see what it's doing to me. God, help me. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I'm broken, and I need you. He has a desperate prayer to God. Begs God to forgive him of his sin. The tax collector's prayer was a cry of his heart, right? He was desperate. He came to meet with God. He has no illusions about himself. He sees that he's a sinner. He doesn't bring excuses to God. He brings his sin to God. Only, that's all he brings to God is his sin, right? He doesn't promise God, oh, I'm going to fast twice a week. I'm going to be a good boy now. He just goes, God, I'm a sinner. That's all we can bring to God is our sin. And he's very aware of God's grace. <coughs> Excuse me. In, in verse 14, Jesus says that the tax collector went away justified, but the religious man did not. So why? Why uh, was the tax collector justified? He didn't tithe, probably. I mean, it's very unlikely that he ever fasted, much less twice a week. The tax collector was justified because he humbled himself before God and had faith in God. That's why. The religious man was trying so hard to justify himself and to show everybody he's so righteous, and he left the scene apart from God, while the man who admitted and submitted left with a new relationship with God, a new life altogether. So let's talk about now how. Right? Like how do we continue to walk away from the spirit of the Pharisee and toward this spirit of humility? The spirit, like spiritual humility is something that we grow in all of our life. And so I'm going to give us two practices to, to practice humility this week, but I want to say these practices don't save you. So if you've never, uh, you know, had a moment like the, Pharise like the tax collector here where he admitted his sin, submitted to God, that's your application today. The Bible says that uh, today is the day of salvation. In the first service, we had a couple of people that prayed the prayer, to know, that prayed, like the tax collector, to know God in a personal way. You can do that today. You, you could have entered this room apart from God, and just by admitting your sin, submitting to God, you can know God forever and ever and ever and ever. So for those of us who have, uh, you know, we were Christians when we entered this room, okay? Uh, the first practice I want us to first way I want us to practice spiritual humility this week is when you catch yourself judging someone, and you're probably not going to do this, right? I know y'all, you're good people, but if, you know, maybe next week, when you catch yourself judging somebody, pray the tax collector's prayer. When you catch yourself going, I'd never wear that. I'd never do that. I would never say that. I've never buy that. What are these people thinking? Well, catch yourself and pray. Oh, uh, catch yourself and pray. 
God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. When you catch yourself going, so as I'm scrolling this week and I see something that that a friend or another pastor said this week, and I go, I would never, what's he saying? Are you sure? I'm going to catch myself. I go, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. You know, the Pharisee's prayer was filled with contempt for others, but the tax collector's prayer was filled with contempt for himself. He was addressing his sin before God. And, you know, so before we get mad and all ticked off about what they're doing, let's address the sin within our own hearts. And this doesn't mean that, that we, you know, we don't call anyone out or don't call out or that we don't call sin, sin. Of course we do. We stand on God's word. But it just means that when we do that, we come from a place of understanding that I am a rotten sinner too. And I need God's grace and forgiveness too. So as you scroll and, and, or you see somebody do something you would never do and you judge them a little bit for it, just pray the tax collector's prayer. God, I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. And, you know, you won't change with one prayer. You're not gonna, so if, if, if you judge somebody every day this week and you pray that prayer seven times and you come back next Sunday, you're going to be kind of similar to, to where you are today. So spiritual disciplines and, and spiritual practices take time. Uh, our youngest son, Judah, uh, he's, not, he's up there, okay, so... Earlier this spring, he planted some grass in a cup at school. Remember doing that? A little styrofoam cup, dirt, grass. And he brought it home. He's so excited. He watered it. He put it by the sunlight. He went to bed, and he got up the next day. He ran down there, looked, and, and he was so disappointed because it wasn't like this huge, lush, green grass. He's like, what is this? He's like, what's going on? I did everything I'm supposed to do. Why isn't it? Because shouldn't the seed produce fruit every single time we water it? Spiritually speaking, of course not as well. Okay, so, and so it is with the fruit of the Spirit. It will not happen overnight or several nights or maybe a week or a month or longer. But over a lifetime of watering and tilling the soil of our hearts, God changes us over time. And we find ourselves compassionate and not judgmental as we once were, but, but different and changed. So keep going. Keep pursuing spiritual humility. Second practice Preach the gospel to yourself every day. This is kind of an old saying in Christian history. You know, the gospel is not just for unchurched people that we share out, uh, out there. But if we're in Christ, we need to remind ourselves every day that Jesus saved us, is saving us, and will save us. You, if you're in Christ, he saved you. He's saving you. He will save you. He died for you. He was buried for you. He rose again for you to accomplish what we can never accomplish on our own, to, to remove our guilt to take away our sin. Preach the gospel to yourself every morning or every afternoon or every night. Find a time and be, you know, the secular story promotes the idea that we are the ultimate authority in our lives. Everything that's going to be preached to you the rest of this week in songs and movies and different different avenues is going to tell you to be self-focused and self-centered. So we need the counter-narrative of the gospel. We need to embrace the truth in our lives and that we find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in Christ alone. It's in him. Uh, Read verse 14 with me one more time as the band comes up. Jesus said, I'm telling you, Redemption City, this man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Justified means more than just being forgiven as amazing as that is, right? It involves a new standing before God. The crooked tax collector left this moment with God new. He left this moment with God changed, and now he and God have a relationship with each other. And we can assume that, like Zacchaeus, that we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, also a tax collector. You know, Zacchaeus 
admitted his sin, submitted to God, and then he was different. Like he started giving his money away instead of stealing and all these kinds of things. So we can assume that this tax collector in the story changed, that his moral character changed, that he started doing different things. But here's the amazing thing about, about God. The tax collector's moral character did not change before the prayer, right? Uh, there were no conditions that the tax collector met before God would justify him. Sometimes in church work, as pastors and church staff and different things, people will say stuff like, that sounds good. Thank you for inviting me. Like, I'm going to clean up. I'm, I'm going to make my, you know, I'm going to get good with God, and then I'm going to come to church. You can't do, it's not in you. It's not in me, okay? God does the saving. He's the one that makes us right. So maybe today, you know, you know you're a sinner, you know it deep down, came apart from God. Uh, the application for you to, is not to try and change in your own power this week. The application is to yield to God, to admit, I'm a sinner. God, I need your mercy. Save me.